0: If someone is happy about it immediately, they might grin, or if someone is immediately disturbed by it, those quick reactions reveal a lot about the person. It reveals the character. It reveals sort of a deep place in their heart. Um, the, uh, The passage that we have leads us to ask this question. How do you react to the news of God... Keeping his promises. How do you react to that? God kept his promise in this passage with the birth of Isaac. And it says this, this little phrase, this amazing phrase here. In the beginning of chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah. God did something. God said he would do something. And then a long time passed and they continued to wait And they stumbled in their belief at several points. But the day finally came when what God said he would do, he did do. And it says it this way. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And the point that we are supposed to see very clearly is this. That there does always come a day... When the promises of God are fulfilled, they are realized, they are kept. What we are to do with this passage is to look at what God has done. What God has done is what he said he would do. Okay, And what seemed impossible before it happened actually came about. It happened. God said that he would do it and he did it just as he had promised. Now, for us, as we look at this passage, what we'll see is that it points us to Christ very strongly because Christ is the one that was promised to Abraham when God called Abraham out. Christ is the promised seed, this promised individual heir of Abraham. And he is prefigured in the birth of Isaac. Isaac had to come so that this other one, this eventual heir, in whom all the nations would be blessed, would come. The way in which Isaac came is very much a prefigurement, a typology of the way Jesus would come. He was promised, he was, he was born miraculously by God's power, and then he came to be the one through whom all the nations would be blessed. So in this passage, we see that there are two reactions. There are two reactions to Christ, just as there were two reactions here to the birth of Isaac. What we'll see, and we look at this, we'll see in the first seven verses that there is the first reaction, which is defined by laughter. And then the second reaction is also defined by laughter, but it's a different kind. Verses 1 through 7 show the laughter of faith. Verses 8 and 9 show the laughter of unbelief. And then the rest of the passage show us how God calls us to make a separation between these two. There's the laughter of faith, the laughter of disbelief, and then the call to make a separation. The two reactions are this. The reaction to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he has come, causes all people to fall into one of two camps. The gospel causes us to react in this way. The message of Jesus who suffered, died, and was raised makes us fall into one of two categories. Those who believe the gospel, they rejoice in it. They have a certain way of responding to it. And then those who reject the gospel. And what we see is that these are pictured in the responses of Sarah and of Ishmael. So first, let's look at Sarah and the laughter of faith. This is in the first seven verses. What happens here is that the Lord has visited, and Sarah conceived, we see, and she bore Abraham a son in his old age. It was a miraculous thing. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 She's past menopause. He is an old, old man. But God did what he said. And after they had waited such a long time, he fulfilled his promise. We see that Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Now, you see that at the end of verse 3. What happens here is that he's giving him the name that God said, you will name him. And we saw before that the name Isaac means laughter. And this theme of laughter is strong in these first seven verses. But we also see something else. That Abraham is doing what God commanded him to do. He circumcised Isaac on the eighth day. He took Isaac as God had commanded him. You see that in verse 4. God told Abraham what to do, told him how to name him, and that's what he did. He called him Isaac, and then he, after God said that it would happen a year from the prediction... It did happen, and Abraham obeyed. And so what we see here is that the people of God actually do what God says. The word of God comes to us, we believe it, and then we respond. This is something that you see a phrase at the beginning and at the end of the book of Romans. It's called the obedience of faith, and this is something that's being brought about. God's people are those who are justified by faith and are being transformed We are learning how to walk in his ways. Abraham is walking in God's ways. God said, I want you to make a covenant. This will be a sign of those people that are in this covenant that I'm giving you. I'm calling you to walk with me, to be my people. And he does that. He walks in obedience. It's the obedience of faith. Now, Sarah says this. Sarah then has a little dialogue. And she says in verse 6, God has made laughter for me. And the, the boy's name is Isaac, which means laughter, and she is just rejoicing in this. And what you see with her is she's just giddy with joy. She's just overflowing because God has done this thing. God promised to do it, now he has done it. And think about this when she had wanted a baby for so long, and she had wanted an heir for her husband and for the name of Abraham, and they tried they tried the Hagar method, remember that? That was the human way of trying to get what they wanted. But God said, no, it can't happen that way. It will happen by my promise and by my power. And then he did it that way. And now she's laughing. And she says so. She says, God has made laughter for me. So now after this long time of waiting and of trying to do it their own way and feeling the folly of that, by God's power, he made it happen. And now we have, we have probably experienced this in different ways when our hearts have longed for something and have longed for it in a long over a long period of time and then that longing is fulfilled it's realized and God blesses us with something like he does here with Sarah we are filled with joy and we are filled with the knowledge that God is the one who knows what is best for us and the best timing for us some of us are still waiting in certain ways for some of those things we all are waiting for some of the promises of God to be realized. And that reflects on Eric's children's sermon this morning. Here's what she said. God has made laughter for me. And the point of her laughter is that it is a laughter of joy. It's a laughter of joy in what God has done. Now, every believer experiences this kind of laughter. Every believer is someone who looks at what God promised to do... And then did in Christ. How he died having come and taken our place on that cross. He died and was buried. And then was raised again. And we look at that and we say, that's an amazing thing God. You did that for me and now I am set free. And we have a laughter of joy. We have this giddiness that defines us in a different way from everyone else in the world. God gave the name Isaac. And here is something that I think we can take from that. God gives his people this kind of laughter, a laughter of joy, a laughter of faith and of trust that relies on the promises of God, that sees that God is so powerful that he keeps his promises. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. When God opens our eyes to see the gospel of Christ, when we understand that He took our place, that He is our Savior, it fills us with joy. And we see it, and Galatians chapter 5 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy defines Christians. The Holy Spirit causes in us, because of the Holy Spirit, to see Christ, and not just the, the person of the Son, but all of the Holy Trinity, through Christ, who most reveals Him to us, then the Holy Spirit within us causes us to well up with this joy. It's it's from God, and it is good. And it is because of God's great deeds that we rejoice. The Holy Spirit causes us to resonate with that, to see this. So we, then, are filled with this laughter of faith. And that's what she says. She says, look, people will come after me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she says, like, this is this is almost ridiculous. She says, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have. I have borne him a son in his old age. It was ridiculous, but it happened. And that's an amazing thing. When we tell people what we believe who do not believe about Christ, they often look at us and they say, Okay. They almost pat us on the head. They say, You know, it's ridiculous. And yet, when believers get together and we know what Christ has done for us, we rejoice together. Just like God did with Sarah, we rejoice with the laughter of faith. The second kind of laughter we see in verses 8 and 9. Now, it says that this was when the child grew and was weaned. Okay, so Isaac would have been maybe two years old, maybe three years old. And Ishmael would have been at that time 15 or 16 years old. This is a little toddler and a large teenage boy. And at that point, this is a few years in, Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. So you can see that this is a celebration. This is a time for joy. And, and Abraham represents a man of faith. And as we've seen in this, Series, this section of Genesis, which is about Abraham, we see how he is growing in his faith, how he is developing and walking with God. Not always perfect, sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back, like we saw last week. But he's a man of faith, and the community is supposed to be defined by this. But we see a problem in verse 9. Sarah saw something that happened. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. This is referring, of course, to Ishmael. Sarah saw something. A mother has a particular eye for her children. And whenever someone is picking on their children, you you see the mama bear response. You've heard of this. And Sarah sees that someone is being particularly um, uh, rude to her son. And this laughter... We have to understand from a context here. This was a laughter of disbelief. This was a laughter of mocking. Now, it's, the word is translated laughing, just like we have in the first part of this passage, where Isaac's name is mentioned, and then Sarah says that God has made laughter for me. The same root is in both words, but this word is, is different. This word is a laughter of mockery. Sarah saw this teenage boy laughing at this little toddler. Now the word that is here in verse 9 is the same as when Lot went to his son's-in-law and he said, we have to get out. God is going to destroy this place. They did what? They laughed at him. It was a laughter of not taking him seriously and of mocking him. It says that they thought he was joking and they kind of dismissed it. So they sort of rejected Lot's message with laughter. Another time we see this, is when Samson, remember Samson um, when he was caught by the Philistines whenever um, Delilah betrayed him and they cut off his hair and they gouged out his eyes and they took him as a prisoner and his strength was gone? When Samson was a prisoner of the Philistines, they said, let's have a party. And they had lots of people of the Philistines in this massive building that they built which was supported by two structural pillars that supported the the place. And they said, let's bring him out here and let's put him in between these. So they take him out as a prisoner. He can't see a thing. And the reason that they wanted to take him out, and remember he prayed for God's strength one more time and he was able to destroy and defeat the Philistines one last time by his death. What happens is they say, hey, we're having a great party. We're drinking. We're having a good time. Let's bring Samson out and laugh at him. They were laughing at him in mockery. They were laughing at someone that was their enemy, that had caused them difficulty, that was opposed to them. They laughed at Samson in that way. Another time we see it in Scripture is when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. You remember that Joseph was a handsome young man and he was very talented. And in Potiphar's house, he was was being blessed by God. But Potiphar's wife had her eye on him. And she tried to grab him, and she tried to sleep with him, and he let go of his jacket to get away from her, and she screams for the servants, and the servants come in. And when the servants come in, she says that he tried to do to her what she was trying to do to him. And she says that this Hebrew came to laugh at us. And that was the same thing. She was accusing him of mocking her and the household of Potiphar. What happens here with Ishmael is a scornful laughter of mockery. And so what we have with this in verses 8 and 9 is a laughter of unbelief. This, friends, this is a picture of the world in which we live. The world in which we live is marked by two kinds of laughter. Believers who perceive Christ, who understand that God fulfills his promises... And did in the Lord Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead. And in all the things that Christ has done, we look at that and we have joy. We look at that and we can laugh with a laughter of faith. But the rest of the world that does not believe, they fall into this other camp, that of Ishmael. The laughter of disbelief. And let me tell you. There are many ways to laugh with that kind of laughter. Now, people might not literally laugh, but I'm telling you that there are many ways to scornfully mock the message of the gospel and those who believe in it. You can be openly hostile to it. You can be scornful and mock it and say you are a bunch of idiots. And we get that, don't we? We get that sometimes in some places. We're just believing in a fairy tale. Let me tell you some other ways. Other people will mock us by sort of condescending to us. I used to believe that when I was little, but I've outgrown that. I believe in, I've learned more. There's just so much in the world, and that's just kind of something. But it's good for you. You know, you believe in that. You go ahead and believe. If it works for you, that's great. They're mocking us. They're saying it's not right, and I don't believe it, and they're standing on the outside of it. Others can mock with indifference. Others can mock by saying, well, who cares, you know, and just ignore it. Ignoring the message is another way of mocking it. With these two camps, God calls his people to be separate and to be known as separate even in this world. And that's what we see with this last part, verses 10 through 21. God calls Abraham to do what his wife tells him where Sarah says, cast out the slave woman and her child. Abraham is clearly, understandably upset by this. Okay? Here is the parallel. Here is one parallel for us. We make a distinction of those that are members of the church and those who are not members of the church. How do we do that? We want people to be members of the church and to give them the confidence that they are and should be members of this church who give a credible profession of faith, okay? When someone lives a life that is contrary to living in Christ and they will not repent when they are called to it, sometimes we have to remove people from membership. It could be a painful thing. It has caused trouble for us as a church, hasn't it? Um, Here's the thing. God wants us to make those clear distinctions Now, if someone has been a part of a fellowship, it's very much like Ishmael being a part of that household. But what God is saying is you need to make a separation to them. And God says, like in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, you people who belong to me shall be holy because I am holy. He's calling us, he's calling his people to be different from the world. And church membership is one of the ways that we make that distinction. And there are others, uh, the way that we live, the way that we conduct ourselves It should not be the way the world lives and acts, okay? But God calls us to be separate now. If someone has been a part of our fellowship and they've walked with us for a long time, it can be a hard thing to say they're not a member of our church anymore. We are not calling that person a brother or a sister in Christ. And our gut reaction is, that's mean, That can be the gut reaction to something like that. Let's look at what happens here in this passage. What's happening here is there is a mocking opposition to God's word and a rejection of Isaac by Ishmael. Now here is the parallel for us. Anything which mockingly opposes God's word should be removed from God's people. Okay? And there are certain things that shouldn't be named among us as a church. There are certain things that shouldn't be allowed. If wrong doctrine comes into the church, we have to draw a line and say that has no place at Windsor Baptist Church. If bad um, books uh, are found in our library, we throw them away. <laughs> and if bad character develops among his people we are to reject that and remove that. Now, does that mean that any one of us will not sin? No, it doesn't mean that. We will be people that continue to stumble with sin, but we are marked and defined as people who are continually repenting, who are humbling ourselves, who are depending on Him. And the increasing pattern of our lives is that we are walking with Christ, that we are seeking to turn away from sin and to live for God, It takes time to grow in that. It takes time to learn that, okay? Here's a picture. Uh, I became a believer in my hometown. We were over there for my dad's 70th birthday yesterday, and I was remembering certain things. Um, When I became a believer, I was 17 years old, and I started uh, a year later, I started going to a local church in Waynesboro called Fairview Avenue Brethren in Christ. My friend's father that I grew up playing basketball with was one of the pastors there. Uh, he was a pastor when I was younger and then he moved to Philadelphia to, uh, to do a church my friend's dad was leading a church service one day and he was up in the pulpit and a young man who had gotten connected with the church acted in a way that drew all the attention to himself he walked into the back of the church this is according to my friend Jacob, his son um, he walked in And while the service was happening, he opened the doors in the back and he did cartwheels in the main aisle down the middle. And he was going, whee! Praise God! Praise God! And so my friend's dad jumped down, walked over to him, grabbed him by the back of his shirt, by the collar, and walked him out the back. And he said loud enough for everyone else to hear you will not do this in our worship service. This is not about you. And he kicked him out. Now, I tell you that as a picture, okay? Because whenever something comes into the community of God's people, that is my allegorical illustration of how we are to treat things that don't belong among God's people. Especially sin in our own lives. When there is sin in your life, you are to find it, you are to grab it by the collar, and you are to kick it out of your life. You do not allow it, okay? Now, if that guy was allowed to be in that service, it would be like allowing a long-term pattern of blatant sin within our fellowship by someone that professes to be a member. And that's no good. Here's the thing. Whenever... Uh, Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out, it breaks Abraham's heart. And it should. And it should break our hearts as well. Yet God calls us to do this. But there are some encouragements in this. Let's look at it. Look at the way it says this. The response is this. Abraham didn't want to do it. When Sarah says in verse 10 to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir to with my son Isaac. It says in verse 11, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. I mean, you could just feel the emotions here. You can feel that the the father that loves his son, you know, that has has raised him, taught him uh, how to lead in the household, how to serve, how to do chores, how to hunt, all these things that ishmael is learning how to do from i from abraham um, he's looking at his son that maybe he looks like his father probably has some of the same mannerisms i mean his heart is with this boy it's his son and now god is going to tell him just like his wife said i want them out i want them removed and it is a heartbreaking thing god gives him an encouragement he says God said to Abraham, so God's word comes to Abraham, and he says this, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now, Abraham rose and he made provisions for Hagar and his son, And then he sent them out. And they went out. And what we should see here is this is not a pretty picture. This was actually very hard for them. They ran out of provisions. They didn't have enough to drink. And they figured they were going to die in the wilderness. And she says to her teenage son, you go over there. And he's crying. And she goes over here to this other place. And she's crying. And they're weeping. And and they sat opposite each other. And she lifted up her voice. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Two things I want you to notice about this. What God says to Hagar is an example of how God's word keeps coming to people in this world. Believers and unbelievers. And what God says to her, secondly, is parallel to what God said to Abraham. And I believe that this is a calling of people to, to trust God To walk with him that is given to her. What God does is similar to what he does whenever he met her in the wilderness before. God then opens her eyes and she saw a well of water. It was just what they needed. And God promised to bless them. Now the sad thing is, after God promises to be with the boy, they go down to Egypt and they take a son for Ishmael now that is something that we will see is contrary to this other family the big difference here is that they are returning to egypt marrying a wife from there for their son and this is a this is a thing that god does when abraham wants to choose a son for isaac which is going to come up soon he says we can't choose someone from around here we can't have this idolatrous stuff happening still so i want you to go and find a wife for my son somewhere else and that's what happens But here they end choosing Egypt still. And yet God blesses them. Here's some things though. With Hagar, God still sees. God still hears. God is still being gracious. The call when God's word is going out like this is for these people to change their laughter from a laughter of mockery to a laughter of faith. And it doesn't happen with them. We don't see it happen. Of course, Ishmael is the father of all of the Arab people. God's word keeps coming to all people in this world. And it is the time when we are hearing God's word for all people to turn, to change, and to know the way of salvation from mocking, whatever that looks like, into a laughter of faith. They chose Egypt, but we don't know the full story, all of what happens with them. When we look at this passage... We see that um, it is worse, it is worse, and it would be worse for both to not make the distinction. Think about this way. If someone sits in the pews of this church and we don't say there's a difference between a believer and an unbeliever, And if we didn't say to the people that are unbelievers that come and visit with us that you have to be regenerated, you have to put your faith in Christ. If we never showed people the way of salvation and called people to repent and be converted, what would we be doing to them? We would be giving that those people the impression that they are just fine the way they are. And they're just with us and there's no difference. And you can continue, continue to live your life and we're never warning them. It'd be like a person walking down Little Conestoga looking the opposite way of traffic when we see it coming at them and we would not be warning them to say, you have to look out. There's a judgment coming, but you can get out of the way. You can can turn to Christ and be saved. It would be worse for both because it would be worse for the fellowship as well. That kind of mockery, that kind of, of disbelief has a negative deteriorating effect on the fellowship of believers. So it's worse for both without a clear distinction between those who are heirs of God's promise and those who are not heirs of God's promise. And we see this very clearly in the letter to the Galatians where the Apostle Paul picks up on the thing that happens here in this chapter with the casting out of the slave woman. And Paul uses this in Galatians as an allegorical description, as an allegorical uh, picture to show believers that there's a distinction between the two sons and between the two ways that of relating to God. And he says that one is of the flesh that's represented in Ishmael. Remember, they tried the Hagar method. That was human effort trying to do what God promised to do himself. The other was the free woman and the child of the promise. So you have the human effort and you have God's power. You have human works and legalism and you have faith trusting in God's power and His his promises. The flesh is what is defined by... It's it's just a whole life of mocking God. And the Galatians were people that began by faith, began by saying, God, I know that you have saved me, and I trust in Christ. But what they began to do was they became legalists in Galatia. They had been mystified. They were bewitched. And they started relying on works. They were relying on keeping God's law in order to please God. God. This is a way of mocking God, of mocking God's promises. This is a reflection in Galatians of Sinai. On the other side, we have the child of the promise. God made it happen with Isaac, and God made happen what he did with Christ. And we who believe in him are always relying on him. Now, you can read about this at length in Galatians, especially in ...in chapter 4, but it's really a long section that begins in chapter 3... ...and goes beyond chapter 4 into 5, where he is reflecting on Abraham's life. That would be a great thing to do if you want to take 10, 20 minutes this afternoon. Read those chapters. He sort of begins this argument for those people back in chapter 3 where he says this. Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham... For the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. God preached the gospel of Christ to Abraham when he called him out of Ur. This is the call of Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis that we looked at recently. And this is what it says when the Scripture says this, "...in you shall all the nations be blessed." So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, when God made that promise to Abraham, he was preaching the gospel of Christ because he promised that one individual that would come from Abraham and come through Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth and they would come into the blessing by faith, just the way Abraham is. And everyone who believes in Christ is blessed. Every every nation, and there are people from every nation that are in that condition. To go back under the law after believing in Christ and this gospel is to mock the gospel of Christ. So God is calling us to make a distinction. God is saying to us, and here's how we can apply this, to cast out your unbelief. Cast out... Any part of you that relies on your strength and your ingenuity to please God by your own efforts. That's what Hagar represents. And, you know, we should feel pity for Hagar. I mean, she didn't choose to to take on that role. Uh, We should pity every unbeliever that we see. When people mock us in the very many ways that they can, we should look at them and say, God has given me the grace to know what Christ has done for me, and then to believe in Him. And we should be praying for all of these. And we should be killing every kind of sin in our life. We should be in an ongoing way looking to Christ and seeing that He he did what He did so that we could be living lives of faith in Him. I think that in the days to come in our culture, what I'm seeing with um, different families and different people in their workplaces is that I think in the days to come we can expect this, that true churches will be more distinct from the world. And in that, we will be a source of life and joy for believers, for people that have this laughter of faith, whereas people that otherwise profess Uh, to know God, but don't have a true faith, that they will be much more disturbed by the world. But when we come together, when we live our lives in, in Bible studies and in worship on Sundays and prayer meetings, that this will be like breathing oxygen when we have to go out into a filthy place as the world mocks and laughs with its hostility at God's people. Here's a quote that summarizes this passage from a New Testament Uh, an Old Testament scholar named Ian Duguid, who lives not far from us, and um, he's retired from Westminster Seminary. This is what he said in his commentary on this passage. And this is the question that we should end with. Into which of these groups of people do you fall? Are you a child of the slave woman or a child of the promise? The key difference lies in your attitude to the fulfilled promise of God in Jesus. When you think of Jesus, does it stir within you joy or scorn? Does Jesus' death on the cross fill you with joy as you see there God taking upon himself the penalty that you were unable to pay for yourself? Or are you rather insulted by the idea that your own goodness may not be enough by itself? The person living by faith gladly abandons everything else and clings to Jesus as the only source of his standing before God. That's where your security must lie. Friends, we have the laughter of faith, and we have the laughter of disbelief. If you don't know the laughter of faith yet, today, believe in Christ. Turn to this laughter of faith, this joy that God has done what he promised to do. Let's pray together.